Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by... Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and... Dalibor Rohash, also a senior fellow at AEI. Our guest today is Dan Baer, a senior vice president for research at the Carnegie Endowment, and uh, although a young man, one with a distinguished record in the State Department as well. Um, we're very pleased to, to have Dan joining us on our podcast, where we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along the line which runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why these matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Dan, again, welcome to the welcome to the pod. Welcome to the Eastern Front. It always ends well on the <laughs> Eastern Front. A good place to start uh, because uh, issues of um, uh, human rights and even genocide and atrocities of all sorts have featured so prominently um, in the Ukraine war. There's a quite a unfortunately long list of them including mass deportations, almost certain uh, war crimes committed. And lately, uh, the West has begun to set conditions for war crimes investigations. So we'd be interested in your take on um, how you see uh, uh, the moral dimension of the war and the moral atrocities of the war, and also as a matter of practical policy, what do you think the United States and its allies might do about them? Thanks, Ben. Obviously, for good reason, a lot of focus already on what will be required for the physical reconstruction of Ukraine, given the damage that uh, Russia has already wrought on the country. And obviously, we see today a, a new round of attacks on critical infrastructure uh, aimed at terrorizing civilians. But I think in addition to the physical reconstruction, there are two other kinds of reconstruction. One is one is the reconstruction of kind of governance and, and civil society uh, oversight of that physical reconstruction process and how we will engage, uh, make sure that civil society and uh, the people of Ukraine are engaged in the, in the physical reconstruction pro process. David Frum has referred to this as upgrading the software as well as the hardware of, uh, of Ukraine, um, which I think is a good way of, of putting it. But the category that often gets left out is is the kind of moral reconstruction. And there it's not a reconstruction that requires Ukrainians to improve themselves per se, but rather to recover from the damage that has been done. Terrible war crimes committed repeatedly every place where Ukraine has retaken territory that had been uh, occupied by the Russians. There have been records of atrocities, uh, evidence of atrocities committed, and there will need to be an accountability process. And I think people sometimes in the West may discount how important it is to Ukrainians on the ground that that accountability uh, process does take place. Uh, and that's that's because it, it's necessary to record those, those crimes and to pursue justice for them. And uh, when I was in Kyiv in June, met with the prosecutor general, the, the then prosecutor general, as well as a number of folks in civil society about this process. And I think there are a number of models and it hasn't been decided yet what model will be most appropriate or, uh, and there probably will be multiple models. But the good thing that's happening is that not only is the international community already conducting investigations, uh, but also uh, Ukrainian civil society itself is, is, is assembling 
uh, evidence. They're they're storing it, uh, preparing for an accountability process that will be possible when when the war is over. If I could just have a brief follow up, the evidence, and of course it should be properly documented and cataloged and verified and all the all the rest. Doing the investigation, if you will, is ne- the necessary first step. Um, but you can imagine that implementing either a legal or a moral reckoning uh, for what's happened, things get a little more complex for sure, especially in trying to figure out how to come to, if not a war termination, at least a ceasefire that's acceptable to the Ukrainians. Um, I'm sure they will have you know, competing uh, desires, again, particularly to get their citizens home, which gives the Russians a you know, pretty powerful card to play in that kind of negotiation, which they may wish to use to avoid much in the way of you know, war crimes tribunals and other forms of, of reckoning. What kind of conversations have you had or what thoughts do you have about how to get from the uh, sort of verification or investigative state to the prosecutorial state, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I think the distinction that you drew between a ceasefire and a, and a war cessation is really important. Um, one, one of the biggest mistakes that Vladimir Putin made in his understanding of Ukraine was to not understand that it truly is a democracy. Um, the, the, the latitude that is permitted to Ukraine's leadership to make uh, decisions about either a ceasefire or a, a complete cessation of hostilities is not the same as the latitude that Vladimir Putin can claim on 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 his side. Um, as popular as Zelensky is, he is still accountable to the Ukrainian people, and and for good reason. Their tolerance for uh, concessions because of the violence, uh, the horrors that Russia has wrought, has uh, decreased rather than increased uh, over the last eight and a half months. And so, I mean, I think. In terms of a cessation, that won't provide a clear path forward for accountability. The end of hostilities, the end of the war, there will have to be a determination made about what can be pursued under Ukrainian law, which which justice should be pursued under Ukrainian law, and what might, might require uh, more international forms of justice, whether those are hybrid tribunals, which uh, have been discussed, or uh, indeed, other international mechanisms. And obviously, there's a degree, as you said, of practical accountability that is likely to be elusive, at least in the short run. But I think it's really important to draw the distinction between what is practically possible and what is morally deserved. Um, full, full, full accountability is what is deserved. And, and every Russian who has perpetrated or ordered a, a war crime ought to be prosecuted. And the international community should support that. If I may, I would like just to connect this question of what is sort of morally deserved and what is practical, perhaps in the light of your uh, article um, that came out in Foreign Policy uh, earlier in in October. Um, obviously, um, we, we, we saw uh, the German justice minister meet with the U.S. attorney general 10, 10 days ago when they announced that Russian war crimes would be prosecuted. So, So I think we can expect some form of you know, effort that international coordination, setting up of of some form of, you know, international tribunal for for war crimes. I mean, the question is how how you know far it will go up in the sort of Russian hierarchy. We probably are not going to get you know full Nuremberg trials with 
you know where the where the war is we might be getting you know something more akin to the Kharkiv trial of 1943 where you would have fairly sort of low level officers or or, or or soldiers sort of you know setting the record straight for really more for posterity than for for really uh you know a sense of you know metaphysical justice but all of this is to my mind a question of crude power uh, to some extent, right? Like, so how much leverage we have over the Russians, uh, what they can get away with, and uh, and and so 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 your article uh, in, in in foreign policy, we, we, the, the the sort of feature that I found really interesting was was it was really the sense of optimism that that this war might be the beginning of a sort of bigger domino collapsing in the post-Soviet space for the for for the Putin regime, which uh, and, and and you sort of outlined the opportunities in Georgia, in Moldova, in the Balkans. Uh, and elsewhere, and if if that's indeed the case, then maybe one way to think about the situation might be akin to Serbia after Milosevic, where we might find ourselves in a situation two three years from now where you know the West might have quite a bit of leverage over Russia, and where even extraditing fairly high level perpetrators might be might be in order. Am I taking a a, a an, an excessively optimistic spin on what was already an optimistic article or or are we onto something here i mean i guess that's why i don't want to um prejudge what might be possible at some future state and and i don't think we should negotiate with ourselves at this point about what what will be possible i think we should wait to see what is possible and pursue the fullest extent we can one thing that I want to pick up on, though, that, that arises out of what you said, I mean, one of the other things to remember about this is that the commission of these war crimes and, you know, the UN Office for, for Human Rights has has released its first report uh, about a month and a half ago. It documents rape used as a weapon of war on children as young as four years old. These are truly horrific crimes that have no strategic advantage. And part of the point, I mean, this is this is actually Russia acting out of weakness. They are taking out on civilians the things that they can't accomplish militarily. They are using civilians as a as an alternative means. And it is a strategic loss for them. And it is something that they the, the moral loss accrues on their side of the ledger even if the human loss accrues on the uh, on the Ukrainian side of the ledger. And I think, you know, I guess for those of us who believe in kind of fundamental values, we have to believe that even if in uh, the short or medium term, there are power, there are power advantages, power advantages that can accrue to the truly evil, that in the longer term, that there is a reckoning. And I think that it is highly possible that this is, we already know that this is a strategic defeat for Russia, uh, that Russia has already lost the war in, in some strategic sense. And that the, the, these moral crimes compound that loss and make it more likely that we will see uh, opportunities for uh, for democratic values-based uh, advance in the post-Soviet space. Dan, you mentioned a bit earlier and, and then over time alluded to that several times um, of how Putin got Ukraine wrong. But the question is also how we got Russia wrong. Um, and I think that's an important, um, important step for us to understand how we got to, you know, all these crimes that we're talking about in the middle of Europe in the 21st century. 
Um, you were ambassador of the United States under the Obama administration to OSCE, and we can only imagine um, uh, how interactions must have been then um, with the Russian side. So I'm wondering, in that time that was crucial from Ukraine's perspective in terms of the first invasion and, uh, you know, trying to... or having a deeper understanding of what Russia is aiming at in Ukraine and beyond Ukraine in, in Eastern Europe. I wonder if you can take us back and sort of provide a couple of lessons learned in terms of what could we have understood better to prevent this? And also what were the aspects that in your understanding just couldn't have been foreseen? There was nothing that we could have done about it um, to be able to prevent. So can you take us back to around 2014, just briefly after and, and, and before when you were there um, in, uh, with OSCE? What was it like um, to look at Russia then? I love both aspects of that question um, and, and the what was unavoidable kind of the second question that you asked, which I'm calling what was unavoidable. For those of us on the outside uh, kibitzing about foreign policy decisions or, or defense policy decisions made by governments, one of the things that I think it's easy to forget is that usually when it comes to the really hard decisions, the policymakers are already in a position where there are really no good options. They're just trying to figure out what the least bad one is. And often we talk about these options as if there was some kind of silver bullet, you know, that would have been a panacea and made all the problems go away. And the fact is there are evil, evil people in the world. There are disasters that happen. Uh, there are acts of God and, and not, there is no policy solution that will make everything turn out rosy and particularly in foreign policy where it is so often uh, reacting to threats, there's you are often choosing among the least bad of 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 options, um, and I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of that and to uh, have some humility as we as we try to figure out what that least bad option is. Going back to 2014, I mean, I, I would say that um, along with a, a few of my colleagues in the Obama administration, I was seen as um, I was one of the more outspoken people in the administration. Um, on Russia and partly a big pain, a big pain, probably by some. And, you know, I was in an unusual position where I had a weekly meeting one on one with my Russian counterpart, uh, which I'm not sure anybody else, any other American official in the world. And that did give me a kind of spidey sense of where the mood was. When I left for the OSCE in uh, 2013, it was before uh, the beginning of Maidan and it was before the Russian invasion. And I would say it was in the waning days of what had been a pattern, which is often wrongly only ascribed to President Obama, but what had been a pattern in American leaders uh, of both parties uh, and continued after President Obama, which was, uh, at least with his immediate successor, which was that every president came into office thinking that that president could figure out a way to upgrade the relationship with Russia um, and could fix it. Um, Bush did the same thing. Um, Trump did it in, uh, in obviously um, deeply problematic ways, and 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 Obama did it with the with the reset. And it, I guess it's become common to kind of make fun of that or or say how foolish it was. But I understand the impulse. You have a, a nuclear armed state with which we've had um, in different ways a difficult relationship for the last two decades, and and when you're a newly elected American president, you you think maybe I can. Maybe I can figure out a way to neutralize that 
that set of irritants and try to find a way forward. It has never worked. And every single one of them has come around <laughs> to seeing to seeing Vladimir Putin as some form of adversary because of the way that he behaves, not because of our desire to have a functional relationship. And I think it is really important to remember that all of the difficulties that we have in our relationship with Russia today, and yes, people can go excavate all the history of su supposed disrespect and stuff like that, but the concrete actions that have caused the, the deterioration of Russia's relationship with the West have been t actions taken by Russia. And certainly 2014, at, at, at the point of the first invasion, purported seizure of, uh, or annexation of Crimea, um, you know, that was another set of actions that Russia took, that nobody forced Russia to take, that Putin took, that caused the degradation of his relationship with the West. Day by day uh, in the OSCE at that time, we saw what happened when a, a kind of forum that had been created at the height of the Cold War all of a sudden was newly relevant in completely different ways. And I remember one of the more, more poignant moments of after the first invasion, I had a conversation with my Ukrainian colleague uh, at the time, and he said, "He said, you know, it's just, it's so amazing. All of our weapons, all of the Ukrainian weapons, were aimed toward the West. We never, we never expected that that it would come from the East um, and from the North. You know, I think that was a real sea change. And watching the Ukrainian ambassador uh, debate the Russian ambassador in the OSCE Permanent Council over Russian." Over, over Russia's wrongs, often much more eloquently in Russian than the Russian ambassador could, was was a really historic moment. Um, and obviously um, one that I re regret having transpired, but um, I guess I, in retrospect, I'm glad that I was seen as an outlier in the administration because I think I was right then. If I could follow up on Yulia's question, there, there was the element of, um, uh, you know, self-delusion might be too... And, and you're quite right that it uh, began before the Obama administration and got worse afterward. But there are also two other factors which I think may, which I worry, may still be president. And that is administrations have pro higher priorities on other issues. So Russia's uh, evil doing is practically inconvenient. And that is, that is true both internationally uh, you know, everybody's been trying to pivot to the Pacific, uh, I think, since I was 14 years old. Obviously, so much uh, emphasis uh, in the last two, well, the last three administrations has been placed on uh, domestic priorities. So, you know, the thing that I would be interested in your speculation on is whether the atrocities committed by Russia will tip the sort of overall balance in a way, uh, because as, as Yulia said, it's, you know, we have a Russia problem that extends beyond a Putin problem it, in a way that will command the long-term attention necessary, uh, not simply to triumph on the battlefield, but to um, conduct the moral reckoning that we started talking about. You know, I, I obviously, I, I think that's the kind of however many millions of dollars question um, at, the, at this point. And, you know, you have, you, you have voices. <laughs> the power, let's just call it the Powerball question. Yeah, the Powerball right? question. Exactly. Over a billion. Um, you have voices here in D.C. right now, um, voices on the right, on the political right, that are basically saying we should 
kind of leave Ukraine, um, not completely, but like kind of dial down to a, to a moderate investment there and turn our full attention uh, to the to the Pacific. Um, that that's the that's the crucial um, thing, and we do have a reality which is not which is often overstated, but we have a reality that there is a relative decline in U.S. power uh, economically and politically because of the rise of other powers, and that that creates new dynamics in geopolitics and a kind of vacuum of sorts in various places. Some in Europe have been wrongly celebrating this as if it's not a problem for them as much as it's a problem for us. Um, but um, I'm looking at you, Paris. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, we, we have a dynamic where relative U.S. power is de- declining and two very serious challenges, but different ones remain both in Europe and in the Pacific. And it's simply not credible to me to say that what we should do is pick one or the other and focus on that. Obviously, we have to figure out a way to do both, because if you only did one, you would inevitably be dealing with the other in short order. And it is not plausible to say you can just ignore Russia and Ukraine and focus on the Pacific without thinking that there would be repercussions of your having ignored Russia and Ukraine and focused on the Pacific in the Pacific at some point. I mean, the world does not get divided up into convenient little baskets where you can tackle one at one at a time. Um, we have to keep our eye on both. And that does mean that the United States needs to, I mean, I think the real strategic implication of that is that the United States actually depends on deepening our partnerships and alliances more in this moment than in a mo- than 10 years ago or 15 years ago, because we have to create the facsimile of scale through partnerships uh, and, and through enabling our partners and, and strengthening their own capacities uh, in order to be able to tackle two major geopolitical challenges, both of which are revisionist in different ways at the same time. Uh, it is not an option to, to ignore one in favor of the other. But like, If you were serious about pursuing these two options at the same time as we should and I, I don't think anybody would sort of disagree with with, with, with with that claim you 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 make the united states should be doing things that we are currently not doing uh at ai you know our dear leader Corey shaki has this quibble about the national security strategy being totally unfettered to the actual defense budget and 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 and, and just Making commitments that are not not sort of matched by by the actual tools at the available at the disposal of 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 of, of the defense department and our, our military and 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 the question is, you know, in a you know inflationary environment uh, with economies in the United States and elsewhere in the Western world being kind of sluggish as of late, uh, you know, what can be done to to, to actually provide that impetus for for, for, for for taking these these two threats more seriously and, and 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 just you know we should we should be sort of you know we should have been doing things five ten years ago that would have prepared us for the present moment which we didn't and and now we are not even sort of doing the sort of stuff that would be needed you know five years down the line and 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 that to me is a source of concern. Sure. And it should always be a source of concern. And I'm sure that it is always true that we should have been doing something five or 10 years ago to prepare ourselves for this moment. And that's an, that's an evergreen. You're right. That's an evergreen. We only, but we only get control over this moment and what we do going forward. I guess, broadly speaking, I think um, 
I am not in the, I do think that our relative, the relative decline of, uh, of U.S. economic dominance and political dominance uh, in, in the world system does not mean that we can just spend our way back into some form of kind of neo-hegemony. And so I think we have to be conscious of the fact that there are limits on what we can spend. There are limits on what, what our economy can support, which is part of the reason why we need partners to step up and uh, we need their capacities to expand as well. I think, you know, it is not clear to me that the roughly $800 billion that we spend on defense is spent as efficiently and effectively toward the objectives laid out in the national security strategy or the, or the objectives that others might, might adjust in the national security strategy in order to deliver the strategic impact that, that we think we need in order to handle the geopolitical challenges of the world we inhabit. And obviously, defense spending in the United States is notoriously difficult to uh, to wrap one's arms around and to adjust because of all of the uh, ways in which it is entrenched in various political interests and because of the complexity of it and uh, because of the power of the Defense Department and the American political system. Uh, I think a robust defense budget is one piece of the equation and then the other piece of the equation is a smart defense budget. And I guess if I were picking where to spend time and energy, uh, it would be on the latter because I think we need to spend what used to be just a kind of inefficient or inconvenient drag, which is to say less than fully effective and efficient defense spending, is now a strategic risk. And so we need to have a dialogue in this country about how you use the money we've got and use the money we've got allocated to defense spending as efficiently and effectively as possible, not just because it's what taxpayers deserve, but it's because it, it's essential in this particular geopolitical moment that the United States is packing the largest punch it can. You know, I want to stay a little bit on this um, before we move away from the United States. And, and I guess we will have to wrap up at some point, too, though we want to keep you here as long as possible. I want to ask you um, in this context, first, I want to state the following in, in this defense issue, strategic of how to spend and how to spend smart, what keeps me up at night most is the fact that people don't realize, um, some particularly here in the United States, that it will cost more with regards to Russia and Ukraine, as well as with regards to China and other things later. But with Russia, particularly now looking at atrocities, etc., the longer we drag this out, the more it will cost us. And this, to me, is one important lesson learned. Now, on the other hand, I'm heartened to see, and I'm sure you are too, that Ukraine so far in Washington politics overall has been a unifier. Um, and so I want to ask you what keeps you up at night um, in this context, because we're looking at, you know, elections in, in one week. Um, and uh, we you pointed out earlier to um, elements of the Republican Party that are either neo-isolationist or China firsters, um, but we've also seen the progressive letter um, last week asking for early negotiations that was then withdrawn. Um, and so that suggests to everyone, um, not just here in Washington, but everybody in Europe is looking at that now um, with fear in terms of what comes next for Ukraine and for, um, let's say, Europe at large. So. Mm, what keeps you then up at night uh, when you're looking at elections and, and at transatlantic security? 
I mean, with with respect to Ukraine and U.S. and allied support for Ukraine specifically, and by the way, the EU needs to do much more. But um, with with respect to Ukraine, I guess the thing that keeps me up at night is is whatever happens in the new Congress and whether domestic political dynamics here in the United States cause a distortion to what is, in my view, the clear long-term strategic interest of the United States, which is to continue to support Ukraine, give them what they need to, to prosecute a war of defense um, against an aggressor that has strategic implications for our, all of our allies in Europe and for the United States. And by the way, you know, well, I do think that we need to be conscious of what the United States can support in terms of and sustain in terms of long-term uh, defense spending um, we can continue to do that. There, it is. It is a false claim that we can't afford to continue to support Ukraine. We can continue to support Ukraine indefinitely uh, at, at the current rate, um, and obviously, we hope the war doesn't go on indefinitely. But we can do that. Um, it's it's a false claim when people say we can't. Um, so I hope that um, members of both parties will post election not allow themselves to be captured by toxic political dynamics that have more to do with American politics and polarization than they do with American strategic uh, um, interests. Uh, in the longer term, I think, I guess what keeps me up at night, going back to that broader frame that I use, I understand why reckoning with the end of what was an aberration historically, but the relatively short but palpable in the memory of the, the generation that is currently alive, um, period in which America did enjoy solo world superpower status. I understand with the, the I understand why reckoning with the end of that or uh, at least a suspension of that is unsatisfying and uncomfortable and scary to a lot of people. And why that could provoke a reaction which is well then we should just, you know, pull pull up pull pull into ourselves and focus on uh, uh, just ourselves, because if we can't if we can't be leading in the world, then we should just pull back. Um, but it, but that reaction is exactly wrong. It means that we actually have to focus more on leading in the world in order to defend American prosperity and long term security. And uh, I think you know, for those of us who lie awake at night thinking about that, it's it's on us to make the case for renewed American leadership and the possibility of continued American leadership in the world, even in an era where there are, where there is not American hegemony. Um, it means that we have to function more as a cooperator in chief in multiple multiple domains, whether it comes to emerging technology or tackling global challenges or defense and security strategies for various re uh, critical regions around the world. And we have to be able to make the case that it's time to double down on American leadership, not to retreat into ourselves. All right. We have to stop because we've come to the happy morning in America moment on the Eastern Front. Uh, and those really only happen not even in every episode. So we have to grab them while we can. However, I have one important lecture to deliver as the defense geek and recovering neocon uh, in the room. And that is, we can afford the honking military that we need. And in fact, it turns out that things like HIMARS have, were actually a really good purchase. The problem is we just don't have enough of them. And if we could also transfer other canceled systems like the Crusader artillery piece to the Ukrainians, war would have been over uh, or might not even have started in the first place. Okay, but that, so I'll, I'll 
That is the beginning of what should be a much longer sermon, but I'll have to save it for for next Sunday. Dan, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really hope that that you'll come back uh, periodically um, and talk to us. This has been a uh, a really quite um, enlightening conversation. I'm going to use the facsimile of scale phrase uh, shamelessly, uh, uh, but in my mind, I'll at least be citing you whenever I do so. So thank you. For just sake of accuracy, I should, I should point out that this is not Dan's first appearance on this podcast. Oh, he yes. Was yeah. a guest on our impromptu episode recorded from, from Kiev back in Back in, back in June. So he's very much a friend of the show and and we hope he'll continue to be one. Well, uh, I stand corrected. Actually, the, it's been such a blizzard of podcasts that my uh, cranky old person's mind can't keep up with all the details. But we'll have to send, uh, you know, we'll have to send Dan one of our signature coffee cups as a result of his uh, multiple appearances. Oh, I love it. Uh, for me, Giselle Donnelly. Thank you so much for listening to the Eastern Front. It's a podcast dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line that extends from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. That's one word. Now, I mentioned that we have uh, giveaways for really great Eastern Front swag. There's a coffee cup and a tote bag. The uh, details on how to uh, uh, get yourself one uh, are available uh, on the website. And we also have a newsletter that's been live for the last six weeks or so. You can sign up for that newsletter through the link included in the show notes, and you'll receive a bi-weekly update of our newly released episodes with an exclusive Q&A with our hosts, your hosts, me, Dalibor, and Yulia. And you'll stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and articles that we've written on security challenges on the Eastern Front. So thank you again, Dan, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. See you next time.